Hello and welcome to Adipod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Today, we talk to Topher Field and Emily Dye of the ATA about the Murray-Darling Basin issue. Also, on a quick note, there was some construction in the building the day that we recorded, so there may be a little bit of background noise. Please enjoy the episode and stick around after the episode to learn more about the ATA. So here we are once again. Uh, I'm at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance office with Emily Dye, our communications director. Hello. And uh, we're also joined by Skype by an important uh, guest. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Oh, sure. My name's Topher Field. Uh, you may or may not know who I am, but I'm best known for my videos and at the moment best known for my work on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Fantastic. So let's talk about this because I, I must admit I've had a hard time understanding it. You and Emily have obviously written extensively on it. So I want to mm. kind of try to get an eagle's eye view. Uh, if, you, if you were trying to explain it to your three-year-old son, what would you say? Sure. Sure. So... At its peak, about 40% of Australia's food came from the Murray-Darling Basin. That's an area where there are two primary rivers, but lots of smaller rivers and creeks that run through it, the the Murray River and the Darling River, which is where it gets its name from. And for those who know basic Australian geography, if you can imagine the southern part of Queensland, all of inland New South Wales, so that's only an hour or two from the coast, everything inland of there in the whole of New South Wales, the north of Victoria and the southeastern corner of South Australia. If you can picture that geographic area, it's a massive physical space. That's the Murray-Darling Basin. And we have beautiful, fertile, growing soils through that area. We have a lot of sunshine through that area. All we need to have just this incredible, productive, high-quality food bowl is water. Now, water was supplied, uh, well, Australia naturally is not a great, uh, reliable place for water. We have droughts and flooding rains, as Dorothea McKellar put it many years ago. And so to, to balance that out, we, or the, the early settlers and then through to uh, even as recently as the 1960s and 70s, we were building dams and working on infrastructure projects that would allow us to catch water when it rained and then use that water over the following years to get through droughts and so forth until the next big rain. And so we created this amazing, reliable food bowl, producing some incredible food and generally feeding 10 to 15 million more people than what we had in the country. So not only were we feeding all of the people in Australia, Uh, from food grown in Australia, we were actually feeding an extra 10 to 15 or so million people every year who lived outside of Australia. So productive was our food bowl. Right. So this was essentially uh, so productive that we were not only able to feed the country with it, but we were able to export the surplus. Enough for literally millions of people, yes. Amazing. And so what's happened recently is we've seen the the federal government have got involved in trying to manage the water. So it used to be managed by agreements between the states, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. And as you can imagine, you get that many organisations or that many states involved. There's going to be some tough negotiations and some pretty unhappy people from time to time. But over the history of the Murray-Darling Basin, actually, mostly it has functioned pretty well. There really haven't been major problems. There's been plenty of minor problems and and certainly people have been negatively negatively affected from time to time by issues or disputes between the states, no doubt about that. But functionally, from a big picture point of view, the Murray-Darling Basin was functioning. 
And then along okay. came the Millennium Drought, which uh, ran from around about the turn of the millennium uh, through to it broke in 2010. It was quite a long drought. It wasn't the deepest drought in terms of the amount of rainfall that did fall each year, although we did actually have two very low years in there. But it was quite an extended period of time of below average rainfall. And that, of course, adds up over time. And you've got irrigators using water to irrigate with. You've got towns using water to drink. You've got industry using water. And then, of course, there's there's water that's left in the system to to maintain wetlands and, and water levels in the rivers for, for all of your natural sort of resources as well. And so that takes its toll over time. And by the time we reach 2007, which reached this really critical and really unique situation that we'd never seen before since Europeans had settled, and that was that the water, the amount of water left in the system was so low that not only were farmers not really getting any water and not only were, um, were, were industry being cut back, but towns were starting to, to be threatened, the town supply. Uh, and also, interestingly, and this really was unique because it stems from something that humans did in the 1940s, the lower lakes. Now, these are lakes in South Australia. This is where the Murray River meets the ocean. So the Murray River runs along as the border of Victoria and New South Wales and then runs into South Australia and then it turns south and, and reaches the southern border of South Australia. But like most, most rivers in Australia, it doesn't actually run directly into the ocean. It runs into a set of lakes first, which is kind of the way they all do. You think about the Parramatta River in Sydney or you think about the Yarra River in Melbourne. They all run into an estuary of some sort or a bay of some sort. And the Murray River was no exception. So, but what happened in the 1940s was we turned those rivers, uh, sorry, we turned those lakes fresh. We built barrages across the mouth to actually block the ocean water from getting in. And that's a little bit like if you, if you imagine building a barrage across the mouth of Port Phillip Bay, for example. Um, you know, it's a pretty big engineering exercise, but we did that back in the 1940s. As a result, this is, this is the thing that, that really started all of the problems. By 2007, the amount of water flowing into those lower lakes was so low that the water level was dropping because water was evaporating away from the rivers, uh, from the lakes, mm -hmm. sorry, every single year, and not enough water was flowing in to replace it. And we ended up in a real crisis situation because the water level dropped so low because ocean water couldn't come back in to replace it. And that's what used to happen before we built the barrages. The water level got so low that soils that had never been exposed to oxygen and sunlight in thousands of years were at risk of being exposed. And these were acid sulfate soils. And if they interact with, with the oxygen and the sunlight, we all of a sudden mobilize this massive amount of sulfuric acid. And we had a real genuine uh -huh. acid crisis on our hands in those lower lakes. That's when the federal government decided that they were going to step in and they were going to start running the Murray-Darling Basin now because, in their view, the mm. states had failed. That was, that was essentially the line that got drawn at that point. And in 2007, the federal government passed legislation and basically took over uh, large aspects of running the system. They certainly didn't take over the whole thing, but what they certainly took over were the environmental watering aspects of it to a large degree. And the way that they did that was they gave $13 billion worth of taxpayers' money to a new organisation, a government body called the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and they yeah. tasked them with coming up with a plan to use that $13 billion to buy up or otherwise extract from useful purposes, from irrigators and so forth, uh, mm. 2,750 gigalitres of water. Now, that is just a number. It's such a big number that it, it becomes meaningless. It's very, very hard to visualise. But if you can think of one megalitre as a swimming pool, okay, that's an, okay. Olympic, sw an okay. Olympic swimming pool. That's one megalitre of water. One gigalitre is 1,000 of those. Okay, so it's already one, gig one gigalitre is already an enormous amount of water. Then the federal government were taking 2,750 
gigaliters, which works out to be uh, 2,750,000 Olympic swimming pools of water away from farmers. And they were funded by taxpayers to do that, $13 billion. They haven't quite spent all of it, but they're they're, they're getting closer. What that did was it meant all of a sudden that irrigators couldn't afford to buy up water anymore because there was this government body with what worked out to be effectively a blank checkbook coming in and buying up all the irrigation water. Now, water prices have gone from being, not so long ago, they were down below $50 per megalitre. So if a farmer needed to grow some crop and it wasn't raining, they would pay for water to be delivered via an irrigation channel. And they'd pay about 50 bucks for a megalitre of water. And just for, for, you know, for instance, you could grow on a hectare of land, you could grow for for one or two megalitres of water, you could grow some really good grass to feed your, your cattle for the year okay okay so a megalitre of water is not a, not a huge amount in irrigation terms but it's a useful amount and so they might be yeah. buying 10 or 20 or 100 or even 200 megalitres at a time at, at less than 50 dollars per megalitre now prices are in excess of 850 dollars per megalitre at that price very few farmers can make money because the yeah, cost of, of, of feeding the cows is more than the revenue they get from the milk or from the beef that gets produced by the cows. Same thing with crops. The cost of growing crops is now actually more than what they can get on the international grain market, for example. And so we've got this incredible situation where due to our own government entering the management of water within the Murray-Darling Basin, suddenly the growers throughout the Murray-Darling Basin, this, this, it's particularly hurting people in southern New South Wales, uh, what the government has done, but right throughout the basin, water prices have spiked. As a result, feed prices have spiked. We've seen an incredible increase in the number of bankruptcies and tragically a, a really sharp increase in the number of suicides as well. Uh, and oh. one one very sad fact is that, that suicide in the country runs at about twice the rate of suicide in the city. Now, not all of that can be attributed just to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, but you can you can certainly be sure it that it's certainly not doesn't helping. help. It's not helping. No, not at all. And all so right. that brings us to so, today. Yeah, that 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 was actually going to be my segue. So yeah, what, what what's happening today? Right, so what we've got at the moment is a situation where the government is holding on to this 2,750 gigalitres of water that it purchased off uh, off the market and drove prices up by purchasing it. Uh, and they're actually saying that it's not enough. They say that they need another 450 gigalitres of water to achieve what they claim are their environmental objectives. But one thing's been really, really clear from the start, and my first involvement in this was in 2011 when I made a YouTube video when they had the draft plan. So they hadn't implemented the plan yet. It was a draft and they put it out for public comment. And I certainly wasn't shy about making my public comments. Uh, and at the time, I, I was very, very critical of the plan for lacking any real scientific basis. There wasn't um, much in terms of real research that had gone into the, the back end of the plan. They, they used phrases, for example, just to give you one example, uh, they used a phrase in, when they were talking about the fish stocks, the amount of fish that used to be in the river system. They said a group of uh, riverine and fisher, fishery ecologists and then went on to make their point. And it's like, well, hang on, you have to reference which group that is. You have to tell us who they are, you know, what their credentials are, what study, what report did that, come, did that number come from? You can't just say, oh, yeah, there's some guys out there that said this thing. <laughs> Take our word for it. And yet that's actually a really good example of the entire document. It was so, so poorly done. The point that I made at the time was if you were in year 10, you wouldn't have been given a pass mark for, for writing such a sloppy essay, for writing something that was so poorly referenced and so poorly researched. So why are we accepting it as, a, as the, the guiding document of a $13 billion government department? 
playing. So, and, and that's just one example out of many, many flaws. They, for example, said, yes, we're going to take one third of all the productive water. So that 2,750 gigalitres, that adds up to one third of all of the, the water that gets extracted from the system. Um, now, now, the water extracted is actually less than half. So more than half of the water that enters the rivers stays in the rivers for environmental purposes. And that was already the case before this. The government then stepped in and said, right, of the less than half that humans are taking out and using, we're going to take one third of that less than half uh, away from them and give it back to the environment. So the the interesting thing about the way that they've chosen to do that, not only is it obviously driving up prices and, and having all sorts of negative impacts uh, on farmers, but the the way that allocations work, water allocations, and I'm probably getting a little bit too technical here, uh, basically means that it's going to absolutely destroy certain industries and leave other ones less affected. And so we've got a situation where, for example, the dairy industry right now is turning out to be completely unviable under the current system. The, the dairies are closing down right across northern Victoria and southern New South Wales. They're simply not viable. Permanent plantings like orchards and so forth uh, are surviving a little bit better in the southern basin. Okay. In the northern basin, they're struggling because they have a genuine drought up there. There really is a drought problem further north and there just is no water, whereas in the southern basin, there's plenty of water. It's all just earmarked for environmental purposes. Um, so anyway, sorry, getting back to what I was saying, the, the plan said that they're going to take one third of productive water away from productive uses, but they claimed that it was going to cost just 400 jobs. I'm not making there, that up. There's nothing. Maybe they were doing some kind of analysis that that affected direct jobs directly affected. Uh, yeah, in a they. Very, in a very, uh, oh, sh sure, sure. But even then, it's an absolutely insane number. This is an industry that employs tens upon tens of thousands of people, and if you're going to remove one third of the single most important ingredient, you are going to lose more than 400 jobs. Uh, and yeah, so I, it, you know. it stands to reason, and it, it seems quite odd uh, that we're even having a conversation uh, about this. Now, obviously, the, the, the issue itself is technical, so maybe I'm mm. going to try uh, to simplify it a bit. But let me see if, if I can understand properly what has, uh, what has happened. Essentially, we have given money to a, a, an administration mm -hmm. of a region in order to grab water that is necessary to the livelihood of many, many people to essentially pour it down into the ocean. Is that is that more or less yeah, what's causing this? Pretty much. Now, they defend themselves and say, well, we're not just pouring it down into the ocean. We're doing other things with it along the way. So they're flooding various wetlands and, and making sure water gets into various parts of the Australian environment that, that don't see flooding very often. But they're also causing an enormous amount of environmental harm. These are people who really don't know what they're doing. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. The Australian bush is very, very well adapted to this cycle of, of droughts and flooding rains. This is this mm. is how the bush thrived long before we arrived uh, and would continue to thrive if we disappeared overnight. The, the Australian bush would carry on just fine without us. Um, and so you take a, an area like the Gunbower Forest or the Barmar Forest. These are fairly large state parks or national parks, respectively. That, that are along the Murray River itself, so along the border between New South Wales and Victoria. And these naturally would flood perhaps one in every five or six years. And that's what all of the, the plant life, bird life, animal life is adapted to in that environment. The government, since creating the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and since taking all of this water, have been flooding it every single year. Wow. Now, what that's done, and, and not only are they flooding it every single year, they're actually flooding it not during the flood season. So they're flooding it oh. when it is otherwise dry, where it would otherwise be dry. 
So we've had we've seen some really insane things happen. Just to, to give you a couple of data points. Firstly, I flew over those forests just in, in a plane only a couple of weeks ago on a fact-finding mission, and you can see that the canopy of those trees is turning brown. There is a brown tinge to those trees that isn't there on the trees outside of that forest, and that's simply because you know gum trees are they're not adapted to having that much water, and they are quite literally drowning. Over a period of years, by having their their roots wet for so long, <clears throat> excuse me, they are quite literally slowly drowning those trees. The second thing you'll note, I've got photographs of people. Sorry, that's how I always kill my succulents. Yeah, you, I've you, tried you, numerous you. times to have a succulent, and I always <laughs> overwater it. And now, just imagine doing that at a very massive scale. Yeah, so on, let me ask on, you something. Um, yeah. The Topher, what what essentially, and, and maybe this is uh, this is me maybe jumping to a different part of the discussion, or maybe mm. being just a cynic. Mm. Uh, is this a group of people uh, trying to justify a massive government expenditure into them, essentially, or is this just brute, all natural, just being bad at what you do? I think there's a little bit of both. Every bureaucrat, every government employee spends their day trying to justify their existence. Um, and I don't say that cynically because, to be honest, there's a lot of people in the private sector who do the same thing. Um, however, it's certainly true within the public sector. They, they are always looking over their shoulder and making sure that they can justify their existence. And there's a few ways that they can do that. Running out of resources for a government department is one of the most important ways for them to signal their own importance. And this is a really interesting psychological thing that doesn't work in the private sector, but does work in the public sector. If mm. a department runs out of money, that just proves how much work they're doing. <laughs> if they don't have enough water, that just proves how important and how vital all the environmental work that they've done with the water that they were given and how much they need even more. Mm. So... I do believe there is a certain degree to which they are just throwing water at anything, at any excuse. Right now, and this has a lot of people really angry, I could send you photographs of the Murray River running absolutely full. And when I say full, I mean to the point that walkways alongside the Murray River are inundated underwater. They're at minor flood levels. Right. The Goulburn River, likewise, running very full. I could show you that the weirs and locks along the, the river are open, letting massive amounts of water continue down the river. And I can show you aerial footage from only a few weeks ago showing you that the lower lakes are actually at minor flood level, 0.8 of a metre above uh, the Australian height data. So, and, and they've got uh, barrages open, letting water out of the lower lakes into the ocean. So right now, they are literally releasing water out of our dams at a time when the rivers are already chock-a-block full, the lower lakes are already chock-a-block full and they're having to release water into the ocean. How is that justifiable? It becomes uh, well, it absolutely... It helps justify their, their employment, I think. But oh, as it sounds, essentially, sure. they're suffering because they don't have water. And so all of the water running next to them and under them, we're just going to take all of that correct. and just push it into the ocean. And, that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but I do believe that even before, you know, just generally one of the things that happens in crop, uh, just growing crops, mm. is you'll always run into a little bit of the tragedy of the commons, which is to say that since it's a, a, a resource that all of the different farms and all the different uh, people who are, who are using a resource have access to it, mm. that eventually there's going to be different people who are overusing it and uh, as such, maybe uh, everyone is kind of uh, has less access, Right. So that's Definitely. something that's already kind of happening as a base. And what yeah. we're doing now is restricting the supply even more. 
Well, yeah, so there's there's two really things that add to that already, the already difficult uh, task of, yes, administrating something that is the tragedy of the commons definitely takes effect. There's two really, really massive things. If they had never allocated this water in the first place, so instead of allocating it and all the farmers respond by building ir irrigation infrastructure, which we have tens of billions of dollars worth of irrigation infrastructure around the country, this includes public or commonly held irrigation channels, but it also includes enormous amounts of privately held, whether they're irrigation pivots or, or on-farm dams or on-farm infrastructure, most farmers are carrying millions of dollars worth of debt. And at least some of that debt was used, was, was brought on in order to pay for improving their irrigation infrastructure. So in that context, when you then take away one third of all of the irrigation water, when people have already invested in the infrastructure on the basis that the water has a certain amount of availability, it, the closest analogy I can give you is it's the Hunger Games. You're locking all the farmers into a, into a pitched battle for survival against each other. That's right. So had the government done that before the water was allocated in the first place, and this was the amount of water, you know, the amount of water that farmers have now was, is the most they've ever had, then the problems that we're seeing wouldn't exist. The problems are happening because they came in and reduced the water availabilities. That's the first key thing. The second key thing is they came in with taxpayers' money and no business case to answer for. This is a crucial point. When, when farmers are trading water between each other, or even when speculators enter the market and start buying up water where they're not planning to use it themselves, they are looking at the bottom line and they're asking themselves whether they're going to make any money out of this transaction. When the Murray-Darling Basin Authority comes in and buys up water, they are not asking themselves that question. We have a body that is massively funded that has no business case to answer for that is then directly driving up the cost of water, which everyone else does have to make pay. And they simply can't compete with you know, squabbling amongst themselves for the amount of water that's left at prices that are simply uneconomic. Yeah, that's that's right. And I, I did hear so, so, some of this um happening in the region apparently there's a, some big players that are kind of flexing their muscles buying huge amounts of water there are people that are kind of buying some kind of water uh, uh what do you like interest system that yeah, is water rights. yeah water rights that, that's the word i was looking for so essentially it's just all kind of artificially being boosted and my question is what it would happen if we just ended this whole fiasco? What would happen if we just said to this authority, I won't say the entire authority because it's a kind of a tongue twister, mm. but um, we just say, you know what? Enough, your, your powers of allocation and all this money, mm. no more. We're just going to kind of let the, the, the market sort itself out. Uh, would there be some kind of negative ramifications for the environment or would just everything go, go back to, uh, to a good state? Well, you can definitely, you can bet your bottom dollar that there would be people jumping up and down and claiming that there are negative ramifications for the environment from such a thing. Yeah. Um, in that's reality... That's standard in society, mate. Correct, that's correct. We can <laughs> Excuse me. In reality, uh, no, I don't think the environment would be much worse off. And in fact, if you take an objective look at the amount of environmental damage being done, it would probably roughly balance itself out. I think the areas where the environment is better off because of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority uh, probably is offset by the areas that are worse off and we're roughly coming out coming out neutral. The other thing yeah. that is ignored, and, and when you're doing accounting for environmental water, you need to factor in the, the fact that the environment uses all of the water available to it. It doesn't care if a channel was made by man or whether it was carved out over time uh, through natural forces. If it's a fish and it wants to breed, it's going to find someone to breed within the water, no matter what that water, where that water sits, right? right? And so what we've done by building this irrigation system is we've actually created literally, I believe it's about 6,000 kilometers of creeks. 
6,000 wow. kilometers of breeding ground. And every time you fill an irrigation channel, because they do dry out for a few months every year in between the, the irrigation seasons, every time you refill it, literally within a day or two, there is an explosion of life. It's, it, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Of course, it doesn't. But all of a sudden, you've got cicadas and bugs and insects. You've got frogs, like a, just a chorus of frogs. Fish find their way in there. In, in, within a day or two, you're fishing inside a channel that was literally dry only a few days earlier. And you're catching large fish because they're swimming in from elsewhere in the system. There is an right. explosion of life that happens every time we put this, this, this water down these irrigation channels. None of that is accounted for when the government looks at environmental outcomes. None of that is taken into account. So as the government has, has basically caused a whole bunch of irrigators to shut down and a whole bunch of irrigation channels to be shut down, they're not taking into account the fact that they're actually reducing habitat and breeding areas uh, and opportunities for, for, for life as a result of that activity. So I think if you actually took an on-balance look at the entire Murray-Darling Basin, would shutting down the Murray-Darling Basin Authority lead to bad environmental outcomes? No, I don't think it would. The other thing as well, though, you, in typical bureaucratic style, this whole thing is very piecemeal. So the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is responsible only for acquiring the water. They then hand it over to another mob called the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. They're the ones who own the water and send it down the rivers to do these various, to achieve these various environmental outcomes that they're aiming for. What needs to happen... Expensive middlemen, essentially, in the yeah, world. What yeah, basically. Wow. What they need to do, in, in my opinion, what needs to be done is the, the Commonwealth, sorry, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority needs to be abolished. Section 100 of the Constitution actually puts the, the federal government on very dicey ground getting involved in water management in the first place. Uh, I think there is room for a constitutional challenge for the validity of it in the first place, so I think it needs to be abolished. The Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, which are the ones administrating all the water that's been bought, need to be dissolved, and that water needs to be handed back to the states. The states each have their own environmental water holders. They are actually perfectly equipped to meet the environmental needs of any wetlands and forests and so forth within their own borders. So handing it back to the states, I think, makes a lot of sense in just getting the federal government out of water entirely. And in my opinion, the vast majority of that water needs to be put back onto the market to be able to be purchased by irrigators to be able to grow food. I mean, I have to say, uh, you know, sorry, Emily, you were going to jump oh, in there. I was just going to ask, what about the lakes, um, like Lake Alexandrina? Would we have yeah. to destroy the barrages? Like, what, what do we do with that? Yeah, so, so to give context to that, the lower lakes, not only were they the trigger for the 2007 legislation when the acid soils were coming up and all that was happening, but they're also one of the biggest consumers of water. So to give you some idea, these lakes are, are about 11 times the surface area of Sydney Harbour. And the amount of water that evaporates off these lakes every year amounts to about 850 gigalitres of water. That's 850,000 Olympic swimming pools. <laughs> that's just in evaporation. Mm. Now, that, now, that's not a problem if it's ocean water. You know, Port Phillip Bay has, has much more evaporation than that because it's physically larger, but no one cares because it's ocean water. But in the case of Lake Alexandrina, this is fresh water that's being sent down the Murray to top it up that's then just evaporating away. So one of the crucial things that I believe needs to be done, and in fact, I'm speaking to people in South Australia who live in Gulwa, the town that is right on the side of, of the Lower Lakes, but also irrigators who draw their water from the Lower Lakes. And there's a surprising amount of support from the locals for doing this. And that is that we need to upgrade the barrages. So the barrages are what were put in in the 1940s that cut it off from the ocean in the first place. 
What we need to do is to actually upgrade them so that they can open and close really quickly. They're still using, you know, 80-year-old technology. They're using a, a, a tractor to physically lift up the barrages one at a time. They open and close very, very slowly. If we automated these the way that other barrages have been done, then what we could actually do is maintain the lower lakes as a super healthy, super pristine um, ocean water system or, or a, an estuarine system because it would still have some fresh water coming in from the river uh, into the top end of it. And what that would mean basically as the high tide comes up and, and the southern ocean reaches high tide, you would open some barrages so that water floods into the lower lakes and the, the, the lower lakes uh, height would go up by a few centimetres and a whole bunch of water would flow in. Then you'd close the barrages as the tide goes down. Then once the tide is all the way out, you would open up some different barrages in a different spot and let out a bunch of water from the lower lake. So the lower lake's height would drop by just a few centimetres. And this process, what it would do, because you're letting the water in in a different spot to where you're letting it out, you're starting to circulate this ocean water around the lower lakes. And you can really get a really pristine, healthy um, ocean water environment behind those barrages by replenishing and refreshing the water that's going in there with every single high tide. So we could maintain a really beautiful lake system down there. The fishing that would come back would be phenomenal. The fishing that was there before we yeah. built the barrages was amazing. Literally thousands of tonnes of mulloway, a, a fish that breeds down there, uh, were being caught by commercial fishermen every year. That disappeared when they put the barrages in because they destroyed the breeding ground for the mulloway. Now, the Mulloway are still around in much smaller numbers, and if we returned those lower lakes back to being an estuary, they would start breeding again in the same sorts of numbers, and we'd see incredible fishing, incredible industry, incredible amenity, and we would stop wasting all that water to evaporation. Well, I mean, I think that essentially this is the perfect way to wrap up the podcast. What we've established is the government is terrible. <laughs> it causes way more problems than it fixes. Uh, if we get rid of it and give it back to the states, we will see very good solutions and uh, also some fishing, which yeah. which, mm. which are uh, which our subscribers love. So um, thank you so <laughs> much for taking the time to talk to us. This has been a very productive uh, talk. Emily, thank you as well for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Adipod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you care to know more about the ATA, visit their website, www.taxpayers.org, where you'll be able to see their mission statement, their projects, campaigns, objectives, and so much more. Remember, listening to the podcast is free, but creating it isn't. If you'd like to continue to see the Australian Taxpayers Alliance advocacy, please consider becoming a member or donating. You can do this on their website as well. This has been Adipod. We'll see you next time.